The Justice Department indicts Donald Trump. The Ukrainian counteroffensive is here, and the Supreme Court preserves a racial gerrymander in Alabama. We will discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out today. But we're joined by Charles C.W. Cook, Jeff Blair, and MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Babbel and ExpressVPN. More on them later in the show. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. It really does help the show, and we sincerely appreciate it. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Trump has been indicted again. And this time, they're making a federal case out of it. The former president faces um, what's reporting indicates, because we don't actually have the indictments yet, uh, about seven counts relating to his alleged mishandling of uh, over 100 classified documents, including the charges include reportedly making false statements to investigators, uh, conspiring to obstruct the investigation, and violations of the Espionage Act. So we've been talking about this for a while, but I think it's worth a quick review of the uh, of the facts here. In May of 2021, the National Archives requested the return of some classified documents they believed were in Trump's possession. Trump returned some, but not all of those documents in January of 2022. The archives wasn't satisfied, handed the investigation over to the DOJ, which received written assurances from Trump associates and attorneys that all the goods were gone. And then last August, the FBI, as we all remember, executed a search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago property where they found even more documents with classified markings. Uh, Merrick Garland, at this point, appoints special prosecutor Chris Smith, and here we are. So I think we're g- we can break this up into three parts, roughly. First, the merits of the case as we understand them which is limited, but we have some evidence to discuss. Second, the politics of all this. And then finally, what I think I want to begin with is the politics of the merits. So, Michael, uh, Trump and his Republican allies are going to make the case that he's being selectively prosecuted. And it's a strong case to make, given what happened especially to Hillary Clinton and the emails in her possession that were destroyed. But do the facts matter? When we learn this fact pattern, the relative sensitivity of these documents, for example, or how Trump's and his allies misled investigators, will any of it matter either way, or are the facts simply irrelevant when it comes to evaluating Donald Trump's conduct? (laughs) Uh, You know, of course I'm tempted to the latter view, but I don't think that's true. I think the facts really matter, and I think especially because uh, we are in a campaign season in which he has primary opponents— the facts are going to matter, and the facts will actually determine whether his primary opponents rally around him, right, and say, oh, this is all just a weaponized investigation, um, you know, that treats Republicans unfairly. Or if they begin turning on him and saying, no, in fact, you are a wild man who mishandled sensitive uh, information about Iran or about national security. I think that absolutely matters. Um, I think it could matter in other ways, too, uh, in that there's this CNN report this morning about, you know, these recordings of Donald Trump saying, like, this is secret information, look at this, to uh, a couple of journalists that were writing a biography of Mark Meadows. And then he goes on and says something, They have they CNN reports him saying something really bizarre, which is, you know... Um, this is, uh, he's maybe talking about documents related to Iran, and he's saying, I'll show you an example. He said I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look, 
This was him. This was him, him being, meaning Millie. Being this was the Department of Defense and him. We looked at some. This was him. This was done by this wasn't done by me. This was him. And um you know, I, I have no idea exactly what that could be referring to, but there was absolutely a pattern of confusion where Trump would announce a policy in the Middle East and then the White House would roll it back weeks later, maybe with Trump's blessing, maybe without it. Um, and people, including guys like General Mark Milley, began acting on their own. And so if there is, uh, th there's this pattern where, uh, I'll wrap it up here, there is this pattern we've seen in, in previous investigations where it becomes impossible to hold Trump to a standard because when you dig into the details, either his persecutors or his opponents or someone around him turn out not to be following the rules either in a a flagrant way, maybe not nearly as flagrantly or self-consciously as he is, but I, I'm worried what we are going to discover. People here. get corrupted uh, in the pursuit of Trump. It's it's the old like look into the mouth of madness to, for too long, and you will become deranged yourself. It's basically I think their excuse for it. Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's a very fair assessment of what I think neutral, neutrally minded or objectively minded. Um, watchers of the law, people who are in invested in the neutral application of law called Trump law, which is that right. things just kind of have to be massaged a little bit, or the statute has to be followed really to the letter, or maybe it just can be kind of, you know, we can observe only the contours of it, because the objective here, the means to the end, the end is is getting Trump dead to rights, and the means... Uh, they don't necessarily matter as long as you execute the morally righteous outcome here, which is to get Trump any which way you can. But Charlie, um, on Trump law, so Republicans have been quick to react so far. Uh, Kevin McCarthy called this a grave injustice. The more vocal members of the conference are jumping out in front of Donald Trump. Uh, Ron DeSantis is talking in a bit more abstract way about the weaponization of law enforcement, how this represents a, quote, moral, a moral threat to the free society. But um, Mike Pence is kind of dancing around this thing. He canceled a Fox hit yesterday. He has a vague statement out today. Christ Christie is taking on the merits of this thing. Asa Hutchison, bless his soul, called for Donald Trump to drop out of the race. Um, Team Trump is apparently keeping a list of all this. NBC News reports that MAGA World is watching very closely who tweets and who doesn't, and they're going to hold everybody to account. Uh, but it seems like we've seen this movie before, and we know how it ends, right? Well, this is a very complicated question, and one that is going to be even more complicated by the time it has been pushed through the sausage machine of public opinion and political rhetoric. The people who are complaining about the treatment of Donald Trump relative to others are not completely wrong. They are wrong if their assumption is that Trump has done nothing wrong or that he did not in some way bring this upon himself or that there are never any cases that can be made against him. We are talking about a crime that Donald Trump almost certainly committed that he has at times been happy to admit committing. And if it is true that he is boasting about it on a tape, that he will be heard around the world admitting committing 
Trump is not for a man who is hunted, especially good at avoiding the dogs. But I do think that unless there is something particularly egregious or different in the indictment, which none of us has seen, that it is reasonable for Republicans, conservatives, and anyone who is fair-minded but on the left to wonder why this case has been brought when others were not. I think that Hillary Clinton was guilty of violating the Espionage Act. I think the fact that she set up a server in her basement meant that she did so willfully. And the fact that she deleted more than 30,000 emails could, if the federal government had wished to have made it, uh, represented obstruction. And we were told that no reasonable prosecutor would bring the case. And uh, I would like to see a common standard of prosecutorial discretion that does not differ depending on whether or not the person is disliked or liked or Republican or a Democrat or a lawyer or not a lawyer or married to someone who was recently <coughs> president. So um, my, my worry here is that this is going to essentially be misrepresented on both sides that the republican party writ large including trump's challenges for the nomination will decide that trump is completely innocent which isn't true i think many of the statements we've already seen from his rivals are people getting ahead of themselves people who haven't seen the indictment getting ahead of themselves people implying almost as hillary's defenders did a few years ago that it is per se a problem for people who have been president or who wish to be president to be prosecuted if they break the law, which isn't true. I suspect that we're going to see on the left the pretense that this was a crime that no one else in American history would ever dream of committing, that there are no comparisons or parallels, and that Donald Trump once again has demonstrated that he is different and a profound threat to the republic in the way nobody else is. And I don't think that's true. How it will play out in the primaries, I don't know. I mean, I still live in hope, Noah, that at some point the Republican Party is going to say, do you know what? This guy is a liability. We wish to achieve things, and he's standing in our way. But as of today, June 9th at 10.35 a.m., I have seen no sign that that is on the horizon. So, Jeff, you can respond to any of the questions that I've asked, but specifically to you. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the, the timing of the indictment. How, in your view, does this affect the politics of the moment, given where we are in the calendar? Two months out from the debates, two and a half months out from maybe another indictment well, uh, coming out of Georgia relating to Donald Trump's conduct ahead of the January 6th event and post-election uh, uh, allegations of voter fraud, and seven months out from the first votes cast in Iowa. What's the state of play today versus where we're going to be in eight months' time. Well, um, uh, remember back in the 2000s when we were all growing up in the post-9-11 semi-conspiratorial era online, there was that classic phrase, a trope even called, I question the timing. I question the timing! 
I genuinely question the timing of these indictments. And I know, I know, I know the man did the deeds. Well, in most cases. It's funny, by the way. We have to address the fact that, boy, when this is all said and done, we're going to be dealing with a man who's still the front runner for the Republican nomination, who will have four straight criminal cases having laid upon him. Um, the There's the Bragg one. There's the... Um, the E. Jean Carroll one, there's now this one, and there will be Georgia sometime in the future coming up. And boy, you know, once we've finally slugged through it all and nominated that man as our presidential candidate, boy, it's just going to be a fun general election, isn't it? So in all honesty, I'd have said a lot of what Charlie just said, but with a lot more F-bombs in the middle of it. Um, this makes me so frustrated because as you point out, Noah, it it sandbags uh, a lot of the raison d'etre for uh, some of the other candidates who have gotten into this race. Remember what Chris Christie's entire reason for being was as a candidate. I'm going to go after Trump, hammer and tongs. Mike Pence, as I wrote the other day, I said that he had a really dignified start to his race by sort of grasping the nettle and saying, yeah, I was the vice president on January 6th. I did right. He did wrong. You're not going to be able to forefront that kind of a move now, now that Donald Trump's been indicted. And, you know, as we were discussing, um, we've been discussing online and, uh, you know, everywhere else. It's like you can just see a world where, like, every week now has a new development in the Trump case. Here's a court hearing. Here's some evidence. Here's this or that development. And it will suffocate the narrative. It will blot out the sun. I love mixing my metaphors. Uh, it's just going to, I fear, dominate everything from now on. Because what will the topic of conversation be other than the fact that the Biden administration is indicting it, its current front-running opponent? And I think the merits are so solid. I think Trump did this. I have particular contempt for people, both who mishandle classified evidence, but uh, also who go to extra lengths, go to obstruction, which is, by the way, the way that they're going to hang this angle, I'm pretty sure, is that you know there are other people, many, many other people in the past who have uh, done really unfortunate things with classified material, but there's intent here, and there's an intent to deny access, and that's how they're doing it. That's great. That's a cognizable legal distinction. Good luck selling it to the masses. I don't have any optimism. So in terms of just crass raw politics, I'd rather this happen now than it were to happen four or five months from now. Sure. I mean, um, you don't want a last-second blow-up, right? It's always better first. Well, there's a sugar high, and it'll work its way through the Republican bloodstream. Um, The response to Donald Trump's uh, legal problems that, well, we have to renominate him by acclamation and get revenge on our, our opponents here is an emotional response, not a reasoned response, and emotion fades. So I would hope to see some rationality return to Republican voters as, and evaluate this as part of a cumulative um, set of conditions. So I'm generally pessimistic about that, Noah, but here's one reason why I think Michael might be right and I think it could be happening here is precisely because I just pointed out this is third of four. By the time we get to number four, and once this gets unsealed, there is a chance, and I hope there is, because again, Trump is actually, he did all these things. The question here is selective prosecution, which I know Charlie is so upset about, and I am too. How do you let Hillary get away with it? And that's what I fear will ignite people. But as a friend of mine pointed out last night, even if you think that this is BS, just don't nominate a guy who's enfeebled and hobbled by this and who also happens to be almost 80 years old as your next avatar. Uh, this is not going to end well, I right. fear. How is he the instrument of your revenge? Exactly. You won't get in your power again. So exit question for everybody. This is not a yes or no, so feel free to to you know take it as it comes and you know give me an, an, a sprawling answer if you like. We will look back on Trump's indictments eight or nine months from now 
as the time when his fate was sealed, one way or the other, towards nomination or towards losing the nomination, or they will represent a notable but not determinative cumulating factor contributing to whatever the outcome of the primary race ends up being. <laughs> uh, I'll answer first. I'll say it's notable but not decisive. Um, you know, I think if if Donald Trump loses, people will pick all sorts of moments. They'll pick January 6th as the moment when he made himself unreelectable uh, as the nominee or as president. Uh, they'll point to, you know, Ron DeSantis winning by 20 in Florida if Ron DeSantis is the one who pulls it off. Or they'll credit, you know, the intelligence of the campaigns that, you know, affect in, in our minds the very moment when the, uh, you know, the giant dirigible Donald J. Trump started uh, blowing out its air and burning in the sky, you know, like there, there will be another moment. I don't think, I don't think these will do it. And I actually think each succeeding one, um, I mean, I could be wrong by the end of the day today. Uh, but I just think each succeeding one has less force than the preceding ones, uh, in, in the rally effect for Donald Trump. I think, I think cumulatively it, it reads as baggage, and especially when you have these other live alternatives presenting themselves to the Republican electorate, um, you know, that you're not going to want to go with uh, this guy who is just taking slings and arrows and body blows from the justice system. Jeff, deciding factor or one of many? One of many. I wish it were otherwise, but I don't think it's going to actually be the turning point. I do actually think there is a chance, as I said, that, that people will, as, as Michael just pointed out, say, all of this, is this really too much? But uh, I think it's in the, in the immediate short term, you see candidates already going to ground. Everybody is turtle shelling. People, I, I saw people who I respect say, I can't vote for Ron DeSantis because of what he said in defense of Trump. And I mean, what other reaction are we going to expect in the immediate aftermath of what is a meteor blow? It's a meteor strike, although this one was predictable. Um, there's going to be a couple mothers coming in, and we're not going to be able to predict those. I just fear that it's just, he will dominate every aspect of this race from here on out, and the only question is whether people get sick of his dominance and reject him for it. Charlie, this is it, or this is one of many? Um, I think probably one of many. I think perhaps the Pavlovian reaction that we see and dislike, well, if this has happened, then we have no choice but to renominate him is more of an online phenomenon than we might suspect. But don't mistake me that it is one factor does not mean that it won't have an effect. Yeah, I tend to side with that, and Michael, that uh, we won't really remember, and Jeff, frankly, everybody, we won't really remember the candidates' reactions or Donald Trump supporters' or opponents' reactions to this specific event in eight, nine, ten months' time, but we will remember the sentiment. And um, my assumption is that the sentiment will be, as much as I hate the conditions that Donald Trump is suffering and laboring over, I don't see how he's the instrument of the revenge that I want to seek. Um, taking a quick step back to talk about travel. I'm going abroad with my wife next year. Charlie just got back from Europe. And if you have an upcoming summer trip abroad, my go-to hack is Babbel. 
Whether you're a seasoned traveler or embarking on your first adventure, communication is key to fully experiencing a new culture. You really have to try. If you show up in another country and don't even know how to say hello, they will resent you for it. That's where Babbel comes in. Babbel is the language learning app that's sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language sessions, there's still time to learn a new language before you reach your destination. With Babbel, you'll only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson, so you can start having real-life conversations in as little as three weeks. Babbel's expertly crafted lessons are built around real life. You learn how to have a practical conversation about travel, relationships, business, and more. Other language learning apps use AI for their lessons plans, but Babbel lessons lessons plans were created by over 150 language experts and voiced by real native speakers, not computers. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, plus Babbel speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel in addition to the lessons you can access. Podcasts, games, videos, stories, even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel right now. You can get 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash editors. That's babbel.com slash editors for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. So the other big story of the day, or this week rather, uh, is that according to U.S. officials, the very long-awaited counteroffensive against Russian forces occupying Ukrainian territory is on. We've seen some combined arms assaults against hard targets in places like uh, the south of Zaporizhia, um, with little effect, unfortunately. Uh, with somewhere between 9 and 12 brigades at Ukraine's dispense, Western observers still expect some progress on the battlefield, but it has been complicated by the destruction this week of the Karkova Dam. Uh, Jeff, the uh, destruction of this dam, which has flooded large portions of this uh, oblast, uh, Kyrgyzstan oblast, complicates Ukraine's attempt to take offensive actions in the south, which leads directly into the Crimean Peninsula. Well, clearly that also, means the Ukrainians did it, right, Noah? I mean, well, so here's the thing. Here's, <laughs> here is my question to you, Jeff, because it does complicate Russia's message as well. If this was Ukrainian sabotage, they'd be playing up the consequences, but Moscow is not. Russian officials in the region insist all is well. They're saying, you know, there isn't even a zoo in Kyrgyzstan, which is weird because there is a zoo in Kyrgyzstan and all the animals are dead. And we see that with our own eyes. Uh, if the design here is to convey the, the impression to uh, Ukrainians and Western observers that Russia reserves the right to escalate and is not afraid to decimate population centers in the process, denying their involvement is an odd way to communicate that message, no? No, I mean, it is and it isn't because... They want to play to win, and they really not care. To, Russia, as, as we have noticed, does not care about the propaganda war in the same way that we in the West do, precisely because they've sealed themselves off in, in uh, frankly, more successful ways than we're willing to acknowledge <laughs> in terms of their exposure to the outside world and commentary. And a part of that is cultural. Part of that is you know media control. But, uh, yeah, first of all, I, I just laugh at the idea that, like, well— <clears throat> Yeah, the, the Ukrainians obviously just, just just destroyed their own dam so that they could hamper their own offensive. And the reason, of course, they, they're getting this out there is because there's also new recent uh, intel out there about the, what was it, the Nord Stream pipeline, suggesting that that might have actually been, you know, a Ukrainian op, which was right, never... Right, just, just to clarify that, the United States has intelligence suggesting that Ukraine had the a capacity and uh, intention to execute this operation, not that they're finger-pointing, but that they could have done it. 
and they had plans to do it if they wanted to do it. Yeah, and by the way, like I'm a blunt man, I I don't even begrudge the right to do it because Germany has been uh, what I would call a bad actor in the entire European concert. Uh, so I'm glad that they finally felt the consequences of their uh, intransigence with regards to Russia. And, and that's actually uh, a, a pretty harmless move, uh, destroying the uh, entire you know, topography of the eastern side of the Ukraine to prevent an offensive quite a bit different of course now the russians are talking about let's just flood kiev too, like like you know blow up the dam that apparently dams the river uh you know that, that prevents them and uh i i think about these things and i think to myself well okay it's all just psyop wars all that really matters is the uh, continuing Western support for the Ukrainian offensive. And of course, uh, inevitably, my mind returns to um, what does this, quote, spring offensive delayed into the summer years or summer months mean for the future of the war and how much longer are Americans uh, willing to tolerate it? And of course, the horrible thing is that all of this comes back to our domestic political entanglements with Biden and Burisma and Hunter and now Trump, because their people will make the comparisons. And uh, you just, I have this horrible fear that Republican politicians are now going into lockstep uh, about uh, further funding or even contemplating the idea for Ukraine simply because the the domestic political stakes are stacking against them simply because of Biden family's misdeeds. Well, so Charlie, I want to talk to you about Jeff's contention here, because as I, I would have agreed with that four or five months ago, but I haven't seen as much pressure on Republican lawmakers from in particular um, Republican and conservative commentators with big microphones, big audiences, uh, lobbying hard against uh, support, continued support for the Ukrainian position. So how crucial is this offensive in terms of Western, specifically American, public opinion? Everyone, including the Biden administration, seems to want to see drama on the battlefield. I've seen this word a lot, drama, dramatics, theater, like it's some form of ROI. But I have frustrations with that, given their throttling of support and yet somehow still demanding uh, dramatic events on the battlefield as a result. But how crucial is how crucial is the battlefield think, progress for Western opinion? I think it's pretty important, yes. The... Factor that tends to be missed in press coverage of this war's time. The presumption is that the only people who have agency are politicians and policymakers, and that the American public will not change its view over time. And I don't think that's right. The Politics that Jeff described matter, but I think what matters more is how long this goes on and whether or not people who aren't following it particularly closely come to believe that there can be a breakthrough. Now, if you go back to the beginning of this war, I said, I think in the first editors that we did, and I said so from a position of relative ignorance, certainly relative to you, that my great fear was that we would see a World War I-style war of attrition that ended up with both sides being bogged down and huge casualties, not much movement, and eventually a stalemate. Now, I don't know whether this offensive is likely to prevail or not, but if it doesn't, and the Russians have had ample time to dig in, 
then people will start to say, not people who are politically motivated or are using the war as a proxy for something else, but people who are analyzing the war per se, those people will start to say, this is locked down. This is not, as you put it, dramatic. Uh, there is no great push over the top to Berlin, to use a First World War analogy. And I do think that's going to change people's minds as to the scale of American involvement. Perhaps, perhaps it leads sentiment toward providing more weapons. Perhaps the conceit will be that it is a lack of support that has caused Ukraine uh, to fail. But perhaps it will go in the other direction. Perhaps people will say this is unwinnable and there will be more pressure toward peace. I think time and events matter an enormous amount. I think that they are going to matter in the long run more than the Republican primary or whether or not our elite class has Ukraine flags in their Twitter handles and so forth. So this is big. This is big. If Ukraine can push through, it's obviously going to lead to some momentum and probably the continuation of the status quo you described in which there isn't actually that much pressure to pull out. If this ends up as a frozen conflict or worse as the Somme, very different. Michael, similar question to you, um, but tailored to you. Um, <laughs> so, Per Charlie's suggestion, I think the the risk of a real World War One style stalemate here is relatively low. That the, the similarities are that there are trenches, but the trenches aren't full of millions of men, and as they were in World War One. And we are we have a mechanized uh, combined arms counteroffensive here. So the risk of a of a n no movement on the battlefield is low, but that doesn't mean there's no risk of insufficient progress. And if the counteroffensive stalls, what's the reaction you anticipate in Western capitals and Republican voters and in, in the event that people sour on this conflict and want to see some sort of a ceasefire hammered out, do we overestimate our capacity to dictate terms to either of these combatants? Uh, it's very hard. So that last question is very hard to say because, you know, at different times, Ukraine and Russia both seemingly proposed, uh, you know, let's, let's start a ceasefire and start talking, but their terms are so wildly far apart that this seems like there's no basis for for peace talks so the west may have very limited ability to um you know i i don't think that if the west withdrew support uh tomorrow like withdrew promises of further weapons or or announced some kind of limit on the number of weapons i don't think that that automatically brings ukraine to the bargaining table with russia to sue for peace. I don't think that at all. Um, I'm also worried, <laughs> frankly, I mean, I mean, I wish Ukraine every success on this counteroffensive. My, my worries are elsewhere. My worries are, is the Ukrainian government unified enough to be at a negotiating table in the future? Can it control the paramilitaries it's empowered to abide by any, uh, deal that it, it makes in the end. Those, I think, are really scary questions for the West to think about. Mm -hmm. um, well, not to interrupt you, Michael, uh, the same 
concerns apply even more so to Moscow. And we've seen very little uh, disunity in Kyiv. We've seen a lot of it in Moscow. I don't think we've seen little disunity in Kyiv. I mean, I think... There's more there than you might think, and I think think there's actually something to be pointed out about how they've been a pretty effective media kind of... um, They've guided the media pretty well in Kyiv and and done a pretty good job of suppressing any kind of negative stories coming out of the war effort. But it's... it's, Noah's right. It's true, though, that there is division in, in Moscow, and you even see it on their television debates with people calling out the government for being too timid in the way it's right. conducting the war the problem is uh, yeah, the problem is that they want more blood and guns <laughs> they're just saying uh, the wagner group uh, yeah i think uh, a prigozhin right exactly yeah, like screaming you know getting on those little he does like these uh, viral videos where he's actually. like russia where are our bullets you know he's going after the military generals yeah and, and, and Putin. yeah absolutely although that reflects i mean again that reflects a problem that ukraine has had since 2014 with with the ability to control its own uh, nationalist paramilitaries. Um, you know, in, in Ukraine, the, the problem is the paramilitaries. In Russia, the, it's the contractors. Um, I, the Western capitals, I do think, will, uh, in a sense, uh, I, I think they will want the war to wrap up at the end of the year if there's not progress this summer on the Ukrainian side. And I think they'll want that because they, they will want to start rebuilding uh you know, economic ties, they'll want to start getting an idea of what kind of harvests and grain produce, you know, grain can be produced out of Ukraine, how to rebuild Ukraine's economy for the future. is a, It's a massive question. Uh, and I think, you know, people would rather be focusing on those than on just waiting around a frozen conflict. Uh, but again, I, I'm with you, Noah. I'm, I'm actually pretty pessimistic about the two sides coming together. I think even Putin could convince himself that a frozen conflict is good for him in the long run. Um, he's he's dealt with such conflicts before, uh, and again, I, I I have skepticism about the ability of Ukraine to make peace anyway. So uh, I think it's I think we're dug in for the long run, whatever this offensive produces. Uh, my assumption is that if the offensive produces counteroffensive produces very little, and we do see settled. Uh, lines of contact on the battlefield sort of harden, then the terms for a ceasefire get easier, not harder. Um, the more fluidity there is on the battlefield, the harder it is for either side to envision but a it's, durable it's, ceasefire. It, it, it's, it, it's hard, though, because, like, so, for instance, this dam that was blown up, like, and of course, there, the preponderance of evidence would favor the theory that the Russians did it, but the, the, the dam blowing up creates huge problems for the Russians living in Crimea. Uh, you know, uh, and if, if, uh, the Ukrainians want to, as they say, recapture Crimea and, you know, their Zelensky's advisor, Mikhail Podolyak has talked openly about basically ethnically cleansing Crimea and what that would take. Um, I, you know, the, both the Russians and the Ukrainians along these lines that they're at now, would just have endless opportunities to sabotage each other. And we've seen that these uh, semi-independent groups, either little green men or the paramilitaries, are willing to do it against the, uh, even against the advice of the governments in Kiev and Moscow. So, again, it it might be easier to come to terms between the two governments, but I'm not sure the two peoples are going to come to terms. 
Yeah, okay, I'm going to put myself out there and say the Russians blew up the dam. 100%. This is not something you can just do with a missile or a bomb. You need to demo this very complicated structure. It was under Russian control. Russia has a very long history of scorched earth campaigns and uh, Vladimir Putin's fixation with the 19th century notwithstanding. They have a history of blowing up dams in Ukraine in advance of, for example, the Nazi onslaught in 1941. And it complicates an offensive into Crimea, notwithstanding the lack of water now into the Crimean Peninsula for industrial purposes, not necessarily for potable water purposes, but the advantages that it bestows on the Russian defense outweigh those that it uh, provides Crimea. So I'm going to put myself out there and say that, uh, you know, even back in the, when they had that attack on the dome in the Kremlin, even the Institute for the Study of War was like false flag event. Why? I never believed that from the beginning. They had the capacity to do that. They've done it before. It advantages them in terms of psychological uh, operations, and the Russian response to it was was haphazard and chaotic, and not 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 a response that you would see if it was an early provocation. So I'm I'm it's all Kremlinology, right? You, we all have to guess because it's so opaque. Yeah, right. I, panic, I go I go I go the way you do, though. By the way, Noah. I mean, I just I I usually uh, gauge response as the way of uh, you know, ga- uh, determining whether it was you know Russian, a false flag, or if it was actually Ukrainian. And their reaction suggested that yeah, we didn't expect this. Yeah, criminology <laughs> is not guesswork, though. No, it's not. That's the whole point. But it is like it, it, it does have sort of inexact art to it. Right. Fair enough. Okay. So looking, let's exit question this. War in Europe from Republican political, from the perspective of Republican politics. The war in Europe and the candidates' approach to it will matter in 2024 a little, a lot, not at all. Jeff. The answer is not at all. I, I wish I could. I wish. I wish it was a big deal, but I just do not think it's going to matter either in the primary or in the general. And uh, that, to me, is kind of a commentary on how America in general has sort of step by step abjured its role I- in the world, which is something I'm not thrilled about myself. Michael, a little. It's going to hurt Republicans who will foolishly settle on a message that. Uh, Joe Biden didn't do enough and wasn't strong enough and with the implication that the United States should be much more involved in this war than it is. Um, I think they will hurt themselves a little with that message, uh, but it will matter. Charlie. I don't know. I think it's important to note that the conversation that we're having is not one that is being repeated at dinner tables up and down the country. And it's not one that is likely to be the mainstay of the Republican primary we talk about dinner or table conversations. the yeah. general election. But it's going to have some effect in that anyone who sounds too belligerent is going to suffer for it. Anyone who sounds insufficiently interested is going to suffer for it. So Republicans really are probably better off either saying nothing or saying they support Ukraine but don't want a blank check and leaving it there. I think it can matter somewhere between a little and a lot um, in the primary debates insofar as there remains a vestigial appetite among Republican voters for peace through strength. And there's nobody satisfying in the Republican campaign right now that desire. And that's an opening that I think some enterprising campaign will find a way to exploit. Um, but let's take yet another break right here to hear from our next sponsor, ExpressVPN. Indeed. 
because everybody is talking about how chat GPT and artificial intelligence is going to change the world and is perhaps already changing the world. Microsoft, Google, they're all investing heavily in AI for search, but there's a problem with that, and that is that those are also the same big tech companies that determine your search results. Only now they get to cut out a whole new layer from the information you see. Why would they link to third-party websites in their search results, websites written by other people, when they can just let a Google or Microsoft robot generate the perfect answer to your question? There are some serious implications there for the quality of the information we receive and whether or not that information is biased. But the good news is that you can stop them harvesting your data so that they can tailor their chat GPT answers to you by using ExpressVPN and adding a layer of protection between yourself and big tech. I do this myself. In fact, I'm connected via it right now. And what that means is that ExpressVPN, which is an app you can put on your computer or your iPad or your tablet or whatever, really, hides your unique IP address, uh, which makes it more difficult for big tech to identify who I am and match my activity back to me by tracking me as I navigate the web. It's pretty easy to use. I've been using it for years. You just have to tap one button on your phone or your computer, even a router, to turn it on. That's it. And when you do, 100% of your online traffic will be encrypted, which keeps you safe from hackers and prying eyes and data harvesters. And all you need to cover five devices at the same time is one ExpressVPN subscription, so the whole family can use it. If you want to stop letting big tech leech on your data freely, use our link, which is expressvpn.com slash editors. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash editors. If you do, you'll get three months extra free of the VPN that is rated number one by CNET, TechRadar, and most importantly, of course, by me. Very good. So, Charlie... We got a consequential Supreme Court ruling yesterday, 5-4 ruling with John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh joining the liberals, siding with the view that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act does in fact require majority-minority districts. They struck down an Alabama gerrymander that will likely give Democrats one new House seat in, uh, in the state. Uh, correct me on my uh, characterization of that decision, if you would. I want to get your thoughts on this case and the merits of the VRA today. They're distinct questions, but they're relevant to this particular case. Well, the first thing I would say that amused me is that when I was looking through the coverage of this in the press, I detected a certain shift in tone in the coverage of the <laughs> Supreme Court, which suddenly is back Str in the good the term books is of those who... new respect. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Goodness me, they're so transparent. Suddenly a case that came out the way they wanted. Suddenly a case that perhaps yielded uh, the Democrats regaining the House, and the shift was, was palpable. Uh, I would caution those who read the coverage uh, against um, taking that uh, too seriously, because this is exactly how the court always gets um, covered. So this is, I think, a relatively complicated 
question. Um, the second set of reconstruction law, if you will, that came in the 1960s does not sit especially comfortably with the Constitution as it was originally conceived. That doesn't mean that it wasn't necessary. It doesn't mean that its effects weren't salutary. But it does mean that we have all sorts of paradoxes here that are quite difficult to work through. For example, we are supposed to want, and ostensibly the 14th and 15th Amendment require us to be colorblind, and yet the Voting Rights Act creates districts explicitly on the basis of race. And the same people often who consider themselves to be in favor of equality under the law and opposed to discrimination of any kind cheer this on. Um, similar issues obtain with separation of powers. The different sections of the uh, Voting Rights Act, the ones that were dealt with in Shelby County, um, sit weirdly with us because Congress is charged with interfering with elections that are usually run at the state level, and then the court has to determine what Congress meant. So these questions go to the Supreme Court, and different parts of the country have different rules than others because of their history, uh, which, again, sounds sort of odd to anyone who has read the plain text of um, the 14th Amendment. So I say all of this because very often when we discuss Supreme Court cases on the editors, I think the questions that were brought to bear are fairly simple, or at least that they break down on fairly straightforward lines. You have originalists versus living constitutionalists. Uh, you have conservatives versus progressives. You have people who want a stronger executive, people who want Congress to take control. You have uh, those who uh, are more interested in the upholding of individual rights and those who are not. But here... Uh, the, the legal questions are um, pretty tough. Um, I'm not entirely sure what I think is the honest answer here. Um, I, I, I have in the strong same position, opinions, Jeff? but I'll wait till you're done. I mean, I've just been uh, gathering my data as you've talked. Well, I, I find it difficult because I read through the majority opinion um, and then I read through the concurrence and then I read the dissents and... <laughs> I felt like one of those voters you see on television who say, oh, I thought right. everyone made good points. <laughs> well, <you know. laughs> all right. no. this, is a, this is ultimately a mm -hmm. statutory case and uh, trying to determine precisely what this law means and how it should be applied, which is traditionally or should be the role yeah. of Congress, is tough. So, Well, I mean, Noah, do you want me to just like fire yeah. away here? Yes, I do. All right. Please, you're okay, talking well, about the Okay, well, yeah, I actually, um, well, I'm gonna uh, maybe upset some of our listeners. I don't think this was a poorly decided case. I, I think this is actually fine. Uh, and here's the thing that we have to talk about. This is what I meant when I said I was really sparked by what Charlie just said here. There are two confl conflicting principles in the uh, American experience. One is what our principles of government and the Constitution say, and then there's the ugly reality of humanity. 
right? And the ugly re reality is that, yeah, we are racists. We had, uh, you know, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, but it did not prevent Jim Crow. Uh, and that's why the VRA exists, and that's why I can't object to it. You know, the things that you think about, the Great Society, all the New Deal legislation, the thing I have the least problem with, ironically enough, of all these sort of progressive acts from the 30s through the 60s, is the VRA. Because there's just no question that these lines were being divided up. And there's also no question in my mind that if you look at states like Alabama or Mississippi, you can get your way to majority-minority districts easy. And so, yes, it's going to hurt Republicans in the short run, but honestly, the reason Republicans really hurt themselves in 2022 is because they lost a bunch of marginal districts for reasons wholly unrelated to this matter. So I, I do not think it was poorly reasoned. I think that, yes, the VRA itself is a horrible compromise between a clear-cut constitutional principle, bright lines, black lines, and uh, the hugger-mugger of the ugly reality of how humans actually behave. I still think at this point it's the best thing we've got. And every time we have these lines shift because of court rulings, this is the, there, are, there are a lot of gerrymandering cases I get very angry about. Kind of because I'm usually fairly um, – I'm a freehand when it comes to gerrymandering. I say, well, that's the rules of the game. You win the legislature, you should do this. And the only time I'm willing to actually step back and say, no, you can't, is because there is a, an undeniable historical reality of racism in the South – uh, that isn't simply, you know, you talk about <laughs> white privilege or anything like that, but there's an actual example where, like, historical lines in voting district formation and political power accumulated does affect the voting rights of constituents. So this is one of the places where I'm a lot more copacetic about this than I suppose a lot of other folks are. Yeah, All right, I, I would my, just say please. quickly that if you do agree with Clarence Thomas's dissent, which contends mm -hmm. that the calculation that Jeff just outlined is irrelevant because Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act does not extend to right. redistricting, then you will think that this case Remember what I talked about decided. in terms of equity? Man, and I have equity some... Is like, this is a point where, like, I don't know. You're, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, I'll get Michael but, in but, here because, yeah. to Charlie's point, how many times has the Supreme Court said that this formula needs to be updated? And this was not something that could exist in perpetuity, and Congress needs to get engaged here. Will Congress ever? Oh, of course the not. Too lazy, yeah, too uh, dangerous. Yeah, I think too lazy, too dangerous, um, and too sacrosanct, too sacrosanct uh, right? Um, and, you know, it's very difficult because there's, there's obviously, like, a, um, a paradox, right? Like, you know... Um, you can, with racist intent, concentrate black voters in a district, or you can, can, with racist intent, disperse black voters across many districts in order to change how you think uh, results might go when you expect, you know, 90% of blacks are going to vote for Democrats as they do in Alabama. Uh, so there is not like a, there is, it is not true that just concentrating in uh, concentrating or dispersal is racist. It's you're you're trying to look at the intent of both, and I guess they did a little bit here because they're the basic allegation is that they've over concentrated in one district and then dispersed through others in order to prevent two districts from emerging where um, a candidate favored by black Democrats will emerge victorious. 
Um, that's that's why this case I think it succeeds. It's better than the other claims because you're right about how you can be you can do this in two completely different ways. But when you notice the discretion, or the distinction between those two, that's when you're like, okay, I don't have I can I don't have to use my own judgment. I can look beyond the veil of ignorance and say you're clearly manipulating the case. Yeah, I mean, I think I. It's hard. It's hard to do this. I mean, there are, there are better ways to do redistricting generally. I actually think New York <laughs> landed on one by complete accident of the the total greediness of Democrats in their <laughs> attempt to both outlaw gerrymandering in the state, which uh, I give them credit for. Then they tried to gerrymander the state very severely, <laughs> so, so severely that I would have driven this morning across three congressional districts just to bring my child to the local school um that map was thrown out and we got a independent body to create a fair map that actually allowed for more competitive districts and i would argue more moderate uh candidates winning and more talented candidates winning um i just have to also admit it gave us george santos Santos. grateful so grateful for that no, alone. I mean, for Republicans, we got Mike Lawler on one side, who's who's great and great. Anthony Desposito like is pretty good too. So there you go. Great, but, but we also got we got Santos, who for all of his lying was like a talented candidate. Um, so I yeah I I I basically agree with Charlie. I I felt like everyone made good points. I think I think Clarence Thomas might have had the best of the textual argument. As usual, um, but it's not a result that I think um, should it deeply in- incite um, our passions on this podcast. All right, we're running a little long, so I'm going to dispense with the exit question here and move on to some final closing business. Charlie, you got back. We missed you. You got back from two almost two weeks away. I did. I did. We went to Italy, which was absolutely terrific. And then to England to see my family. So I got a two-week break. I won't pretend that it was as relaxing as my breaks used to be before I had children, but it was certainly very enjoyable. Uh, Michael, you are expecting a long-awaited package. Yeah, I um, <laughs> on the corner a couple weeks ago, I talked about how I was pulling some of my you know organization off of my phone and and my computer for good old pen and paper and playing around with um fountain pens and yeah i'm waiting for a package from lammy pens which is a german pen maker uh that goes back to 1930 and they're kind of an innovator in molded plastics and um whatever they're just like delightful little things to hold even if they're kind of cheap consumer products they have a sort of um they have that sort of Apple-like quality as far as like the timelessness of their designs and uh, their functionality, and um, so yeah. So it's a it's Until a small you said plastic. I was going to accuse you of being a very fancy man. Oh you no! Know, they they sell some metal pens, but their most popular um, pen is the Lamy Safari, which is um, you know maybe. Ten dollars. It's what they give German school children when they start learning cursive handwriting um, in their classes. So yeah, it's it's you can get very fancy in the fountain pen world. I mean, you can get 
these like sculptural things for like four or five thousand dollars, but it seems like the true hobbyists are just as much in love with these uh, ten dollar or fifteen dollar Lammies or Twisby pens. And Michael, quick question: Are You a left hander or a right hander? Right hander. That explains it. I love fountain pens until I realize I'll never be able to use them because I write with a hook on a left hand, and it just gets on the bottom of my my palm every single time. Speaking of the Southpaw in the room, Jeff's uh, excellent National Review podcast, Political Beats, notwithstanding its egregious uh, anti-punk rock bias. <laughs> uh, You'll be on soon. <laughs> you have been listening to a British band. A punk rock band, too, I might point out, at least in their origins. It's the jam I've been listening. It's funny because, you know, we have the, 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 the British, you know, emigrant here to America. And I just, you know, last week lived the last UK we've week of my entire life in between writing about the Anglo-Saxons and podcasting about the jam, which is the great lost British man of the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, we did it for political beats. It, we had a good Brit on, Dominic Green, and it was a fantastic episode about a band that if you know, if you're British, like unlike Charlie, who I, I think is actually comically ignorant of them, but most other Brits know about the importance of this group and no Americans do. It'll be out on Monday, but it's already available if you're a Patreon supporter of the show. Everyone should have an anti-punk rock bias for the record. False. Ah. This is true. This is this is the the prejudice in this room is truly odious. Well, you're the um, only one sitting in it because we're all remote. Fair enough. Look at you. Get me on the particulars. For me, in my uh, compound in an undisclosed location in the hills of western New Jersey, it was a suffocating <laughs> week. Um, we had this cloud of Canadian smoke that descended on us, and it really did seem like there was a fire next door. Um, we got a lot of messages from. Uh, emergency services saying, please don't call emergency services until you see flames. We've never seen anything like it before. And given that it hasn't rained here in like three weeks, it was a it was a scary time for us. So we're glad to be through it. And hopefully Canada stops burning. Um, now it's time for editor's picks. MBD, what do you got? Uh, my pick is by Rich Lowry on the website. It's called Don't Erase the Anglo-Saxons. Which, uh, I took to be a stern warning to me and my relatives uh, back home. Uh, but it was actually a warning to academics who are trying to dissolve the very idea that there was an Anglo-Saxon uh, civilization that contributed to the development of England as a nation uh, and the British world that we knew later. Uh, check out what Rich wrote. Uh, Jeff. Okay, so my piece will actually be from uh, our, our good friend Dan McLaughlin. It's just a sort of, in, in fact, it feels like a dispatch in, in a way from a world that may be leaving us behind. It was a good assessment in the magazine of the DeSantis ca campaign so far. That's the headline. Uh, and it's, you know, I think it does a really good job of <clears throat> evaluating, you know, how the front runner and the second front runner are going head to head with one another. And of course, unfortunately, how this may all be eclipsed from recent events. Charlie. My pick is by Michael. It's called The Day That Was Orange. It is not, as you might think, an endorsement of Protestant The Northern Supreme. Irish. <laughs> <laughs> There's no marching down the Gilvacky Road. But it is about the plume, which became a cloud which became an Independence Day scale invasion of smoke into Michael's part of the world. It was a lovely little essay. 
Good photos, uh, too. Good photos, but uh, pointed out that unusual weather is something you tend to remember forever. My pick is also from Michael. Uh, and you could pick just about any essay in the latest issue on fatherhood, and it's a fantastic issue. Uh, you should pick it up. But his piece on um, why you should let go of the smartphone uh, is uh, an excellent testament to why the real world is uh, superior to the digital equivalent and a bit of a challenge for those of us who are inclined towards the libertine side of libertarianism uh, when it comes to pornography and dating apps. But that's going to be it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of the show without express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you to the absent Rich Lowry. And thank you, of course, to our advertisers, Babbel and ExpressVPN. But most importantly, thank you to you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.